I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as, as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to the belated start of the sixth season of Talking Golf History. We're about to dive into episode 114, and another special episode called Von Kahn Part 3, Defending Your Course, where Von Halyard, the newly elected president of the Donald Ross Society, interviews golf course architect Jason Straka and myself on the do's and don'ts of golf course restorations, how to be a good steward for your historic golf course, and then I drop some rather harsh opinions on one of the courses at my own club. This is a no-holds-barred podcast on golf course architecture, brought to you by the Donald Ross Society, Golf Club Atlas, and Talking Golf History. Before we begin, let me encourage you all to check out the Society of Golf Historians newsletter called The Society. It's a free weekly newsletter that arrives every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Eastern and dives into the stories you enjoy on this show or more in-depth stories than I share on social media. If you like the show, you will love the newsletter. And again, it's absolutely free. You can subscribe at www.com. The Society of Golf Historians. Dot beehive. That's b e e h i i v. Dot com slash subscribe. You can also read old issues at any time, and again, it's free. Now let's dive into Von Kahn Part Three: Defending Your Course. All right, this will be the the inaugural Donald Ross Society, Bel Air, Jason Straka. Connor Lewis podcast. I'm your host, Vaughn Halyard, from the Donald Ross Society. And I think we'd, we'd love to take a couple minutes uh, and get into some of the issues that, that get asked when you talk to people with regard to how do you engage the Donald Ross Society in, in an effort with a club. Um, I'll start with you, Connor. Connor Lewis, historian, member of Bel Air. Uh, you were on the committee that was fairly instrumental in... in doing battle on behalf of the club and on behalf of golf architecture. Walk us through the, the level of golf IQ that you had encountered when you guys first started talking about the restoration here at Bel Air. We all come to these things with, I think, the idea of protecting what we find valuable in the club. We come with different levels of experience in golf course architecture and golf I think one of the most challenging things to get past is to get past thinking of the golf course from your own game, right? I think that's being on a committee, working through you know the issues of golf course design and, and, and a restoration process. You know, I think a lot of the things, if, if um, Dr. Lewis is a bad putter, it's about the rolls in the green. If Dr. Lewis can't get the ball out of a greenside bunker. It's 
the tips too high. And we heard both of those, right? I mean, in, throughout that process. And I, I think it's tough because if you have a membership where your average member's been at the club for 20-some years, they know the course that they know. They love the course that they know. And so to ask them to take a chance for something better it's kind of like in, in real estate, right? So I'm a, I'm a real estate developer and in, in my real world job using quotation marks. And it's trying to get somebody to understand the conceptual idea of the building without the building in front of them. It's the same thing with the golf course, which is why you paint pictures and video or uh, representations of what the hole will look like. But it's not easy. What was the Donald Ross IQ of the club prior to the restoration? I listen, I won't speak for the entire club, but I would say my personal take on just speaking to several members, they knew who Donald Ross was, but a lot of the things they believed to be true, I'm sure everybody in this room's heard, you know, about elevated greens, you know, tortoise back with it that repel. And I and to be quite frank, that's what we had, right? In like the eighties and nineties. We had an architect come in, or several, and they built, as uh, Jason mentioned, these irrigation ponds, and they took the dirt from the bottom of those ponds and built up every green five feet, sometimes 10 feet high, almost 10 feet high. If you played the 13th, and I told the group, uh, our group, right? I had to leave. When you play the 13th hole, there's a massive oak tree right behind the green, and I'd say the trunk is... 12 feet high before a branch hits. And I said, before the restoration, you could not see that trunk. The entire green was elevated to a point where pure slope. I mean, our fourth hole was a, anybody who complains about the fourth hole today clearly did not play the fourth hole before because everything rolled off. It was perched up. It was going the wrong direction in a kidney shape. It was ridiculous. Jason, what are your top three Donald Ross misconceptions? Top three misconceptions. Uh, first one is that all greens are elevated with turtlebacks, upside-down saucers. That would be uh, number one. Number two is, is that they're always flat-bottom bunkers with grass faces, right? That's, uh, that's a common, very common misconception. And the third one is, is that Donald Ross never, ever changed his style, that every course that he did, uh, bunkers, greens, uh, fairway lines, they were all the same. Uh, and much to the contrary, his design style evolved over his career. And it, give us an example. When you talk about that's a that's a very important point that Donald Ross was evolutionary throughout his career. Talk us through 1904 through 15 through 24. Give me some examples of those three eras. Wow. I mean, so places that are certainly close to my heart uh, because I live in Columbus, Ohio, you can look at uh, the work that he had done, which was restored recently by Andrew Green. You know, there were very similar characteristics, especially in terms of the bunkering that happened, you know, here in the 20s. If you go even from here to what he did at Seminole, so I tell people they're very really surprised, but his uh, rest restoration, I shouldn't say his renovation of his own course here at Bel Air uh, back in 1924 was essentially five years before he had designed Seminole. And if you go and you look at the archives that are at Seminole and the restorative work that Bill uh, Cora and Ben Crenshaw and now Gil Hands have done uh, and Kyle Franz and others who had worked there, 
a lot of what was done at Seminole, even in the span of five years, didn't look anything like uh, what was done here, right? And again, he would always want to go in, and shouldn't say always, but many times even go and change his work, right? I mean, Pinehurst was his, the constant home of his own tinkering. It's his lab. Right. I mean, it was his laboratory. And, you know, there were letters. Ron Witten did an enormous amount of research uh, when they, for one of the U.S. Opens, you know, that went there and talked about the Greens, which, you know, Ross at the time wasn't a big fan of what they had become, right? And he wanted to go in uh, before he had passed away and actually restore them back to his vision. So, I mean, there's... You could go through Waterbury, and I mean, there's just there, there's, there's so many of them. But I mean, you could all even the cop mounds, for example, here, right there. We had to go, and people wondered. They're like, "Well, I don't, you know, I played a bunch of Ross golf courses, and I don't ever remember cop mounds." So we had to go out and find some places where he did, you know, cop mounds, and you know, there weren't a whole lot of them, but there were some of them. Well, give some examples. Where else did you find cop mounds that Ross had done in the field? Uh, we did find some uh, in Connecticut that he had done. Of course, back then, you know, he was also for different reasons doing that. You know, one year you're mimicking what he, you know, had known as dunes, you know, in his native homeland. But especially in the Northeast, when he was building, uh, you know, they would he would bury rock, you know, and that would be a common, uh, you know, common theme, uh, you know, for him. So I remember, you know, Waterbury, you know, being one of them. Yeah, Rhode Island Country Club. Thank you. Another one. The original plans to Seminole had them in there. And now, what was interesting is, uh, so we had members bring up the cop mounds. I think our members have accepted them now. We'll see. Uh, but <laughs> uh, I found a, a brilliant quote when we were talk- by Ross talking about cop mounds and how to use them or how he saw using them that I think we used in the presentation, which was he believed the idea of using cop mounds to break up the space between parallel fairways. So if you think of all the cop mounds that we have out there, instead of planting trees, I think he mentions, using cop mounds to break up that space of fairway to create a challenge and a strategy. For instance, um, I mean, I think it's one of the tougher holes. Hole number three, I love it. It's probably maybe my favorite hole, but I change my mind all the time. Um, we, were, we, were, we had an internal discussion within the club with some people who did not like them. Do you remember that? It was yes. during the East. And they were like, well, let's just take out the ones that are in play. And I used, <laughs> I used number three as a great example of this. So three, you have the creek system running all the way down. You have a bron- dry barranca in front. It cuts in front of the fairway at roughly 280 yards from the blues. I know that because it's the whole, what I normally play. And if that cop mound doesn't exist, every member at this club doesn't hit it in the creek. They're throwing it in the other fairway. I mean, just... There's, it is purposely there for the strategy, and I will fight into my dying day to make sure that our cop. <laughs> and you know this because I have gotten into um, strenuous debates about the validity of the cop mound. I mean, if you play number nine, which I think used to be, maybe it still is the number one handicap hole. Again, there's a creek down the left hand side. If I take out those cop mounds, where do all of you hit it? I don't care how good you are. You blow that thing out as far right as you can. You would do that, by the way, if there were bunkers there. The cop mounds are a harder hazard than the bunkers because they're unkept and loose. And so it is disastrous to go in them. So you need to play around them. And I think if you look at the original drawings of where he placed them and where Jason re- put them back, I just think it's, it's an act of brilliance. 
Well, the other thing that I think is interesting here about the Cop Mountains now versus what he wanted, you know, when we were going through and doing the presentation earlier, we talked about in his own writing is that he wanted the uh, wiregrass to be planted at one foot apart, right? His own words were make it severe. So we'd have members here that would say, well, I hit it in a Cop Mountain. How, how am I supposed to play this? I can't reach the green. And I said, I don't think that's the intent. And I said, you know, for one, is they go, if you can find your ball, then pitch it sideways back into the fairway, you know, or advance it maybe 40 or 50 yards and take a half-stroke penalty. It's a penalty. In Ross's day, though, think about it. In his own words, he wanted those wiregrass plants one foot apart. You'd be lucky to even find your golf ball. So, you know, when you're saying, how do I play this? Well, frankly, you're going to play it easier with graphite shafts and titanium clubs and, you know, what he played it with and, you know, the hickory people of his air. Clubs, yeah. yeah, hickory shafted golf clubs. Let's move this to uh, relevance to the Donald Ross Society and the resources. I've got a couple of friends here from Grand Rapids, and they have a membership that is, is ripe for education. You, as an architect, have employed the Ross Society and the Ross Resources, the archives, uh, Tufts, et cetera. Walk through maybe a couple of steps that a club that is looking to increase their golf architecture IQ and appreciation for the value of Ross. What, where would you start educating and how do you start communicating what Ross means to a club and what Ross could contribute to a project going forward? So my first suggestion would be to find a champion or champions within that club who understand, maybe have a high golf IQ, uh, high Ross IQ, you know, if that is there, uh, and start with that. Because if without a champion internal to the club, you're going to have very little success. Uh, that would be my you know, first suggestion. I, I laugh because I love Jason. But when but. his when when your name pops up on my phone, I'm like, oh crap! What did a member do at my club? <laughs> it's true. That and is I true. I, I start every conversation. What did we do now? If I say nothing, then he goes, "Whew! Okay, when yeah. can you talk?" Yeah. But but then otherwise, I'll be like, "Well, let me tell you." And he's like, "I'm in a meeting. I'm in cold sweats <laughs> anytime he calls me, and I love talking to him." But it's like. I'd say 60% of the time, it's something at my club that we're doing that I need to get involved with. Yours was combat for some of it, correct? You alluded to it. I think the battle for the fourth hole, you know, it was a battle. And so um, I I don't know. That probably took a full year, I think, of us talking about it. Construction was well underway. I was trying to beat down the door by sending out emails and photographs and visualize the fourth hole for the podcast listener, describe the fourth hole, what it was, what it was proposed to become and what the battles were that ensued. Yeah. 1914 Ross designed a 150 yard hole, uh, which in its day was completely surrounded by sand. There was no avenue of turf onto that. You could not do that today and get a lawnmower on it. I don't, they probably all hand mowed at the time. Right. Um, and, you know, I'd call it the 1980s. Whatever that hole was, was the worst thing that could have happened to it. So, again, irrigation pond dug up. You take dirt and you put it all over the course. You build up these greens. So, if, if we consider the hole to be at elevation now, you'd know better than I. Was it 10 feet higher? 
at least yeah, yeah at least 10, 10 feet, feet higher, higher with a backdrop that a backdrop was 22 so feet higher it was 22 and then you had a instead of the piece of toast i think that's a good way of describing <laughs> yeah. the, the shape of that instead of a piece of toast that is elongated you had a kidney shaped green that went left to right and you're hitting for many people a longer or mid iron and you'd hit the green, and it would roll off in the back, and then it was so steep that people would just go back and forth, back and forth, trying to get on the green. So there was that. And then um, Jason put forth a plan to restore it to the island hole that it was, minus a, uh, a back that was cut out for grass. And the membership or committee initially rejected it and wanted, I would say, a very average hole, probably the same shape, but it would just have a bunker on the left and bunker on the right. And so I started, I think that's how we met. Cause I think I was like, why, I mean, why are we even doing this restoration if we don't restore this hole? Right. It would be technically two of a kind, but it's at the time it would be the first of Ross's kind to be restored. I believe Rhode Island is looking to do it next year. So we were the first to, you know, fully put in the Island hole. And, they didn't want to do it. I think it was unanimous. They, they weren't going to do it. And I talked to Jason and we went back and forth during construction. And I think Jason called me up one day and he said, Connor, I've got to start shaping the fourth green in two weeks. You have two weeks to change their mind. And so I put together a PowerPoint, pulled in the powers that be, and I presented for an hour on restoring one hole. And the last slide I'd call it vanity, call it whatever you want, was how many are we familiar with the 16th hole at Sleepy Hollow? Uh, Island hole was a Charles Blair McDonald, Gil Hans restored it. I think Reese Jones prior to that had a hole that was kind of four bunkers that split between grass. And I kept going back to, here's what it was with Reese Jones. Here's the Gil Hans like restoration. Here's the Reese. Here's the Gil. Which one's better? I'm like, they have the huts in the background. We have the Gulf of Mexico. I said, this will be, and this is vanity now. It was like, this will be one of the most photographed holes in the state of Florida. And we, we can be blessed in the fact that we didn't make it this way Donald Ross did. And we're only putting that back. Then I hit, you know, I hit him up with the historical relevance. I asked, and I'll, I'll say this, I won't name names, but I asked people to write letters to support that. And many people rejected because, in their words, they did not think I would be successful in convincing the board to change their mind. And then I got Vaughn to write a powerful letter and Bradley Klein. And I'm going to tell you, I love Bradley Klein. I think he went through two edits because I think maybe one of his edits is like, violent. you're an idiot if you don't do this. I was like, okay, like maybe like, let's take that down a level. Let's, you know. Because Brad, Brad comes in with like sandpaper, right? It was violent. I love it. I love it. But he's on the right side of history now, right? Yeah. So I think, you know what? Uh, let me say this because I'm going to speak to, I think, the brilliance of Jason. So the committee brought Jason in, I think, during the end of that meeting to make sure he was on board. And the way Jason pivoted through this thing and, and created opportunities for them to say yes was so pivotal. And what I'll tell you about this is this. So one of the major concerns is high handicappers, right? Are they going to be able to carry the ball to the green? So Jason said, well, you know, and I think both of us, we were talking about the, I think the closest tee shot, the forward tees is 80 yards. Right. Right. And that was one piece. But what he did after that, 
I'm going to be honest with you, was brilliant. I don't and even so, remember it. So first of all, we st- he staggered the tees. So we had one set of tees, if you played blue or back, you, that are kind of straight on, and then there's staggered tees on the right. The brilliant piece that he put in there was the zero-entry green. And so the comment is, if you're playing with a higher handicap, typically they're going to slice. They're going to be on the right-hand side. Typically, if they miss, it's going to be short, not long, right? And what he created, I, I don't think it's quite playing like that. To be fair, that's not you. That's probably where we need to get it, is shaving down that, that front edge of the green so higher handicap members can putt out of the front portion of the green and on. So if you look at it from an aerial, if you go up to it tomorrow, you look at it or you see it tomorrow, it is a very soft edge into the green where the rest, like a hook, it's five feet deep. You, you go long, it's five feet deep. But on that front edge, you can put it up. The other thing that I thought was brilliant, and this was something we worked on together because one of the thoughts was, well, in 1924, Donald Ross put this walking path through, and I was not willing to accept that. I mean, I just think the hole is perfectly positioned as it is now, and Jason came up with the – I don't know how many of you walked through the front of the bunker. It's got a walking path that blends into the sand. So I think the one thing that I would change with that hole – is I would want two more of those paths on the left and right with the old staircase going up. Yeah, that I think would be cool. But do you uh, specialize in liability I insurance? do. Yeah, I, I'm a realist. No, I'm kidding. Hey, listen, what are you going to fall in the sand? That's soft stuff. <laughs> so anyway, I, I just, there couldn't have been a better person than Jason for this project. And, and I'm, I'm going to be even more honest. Not knowing Jason, you know, when I heard that Jason was doing it, I had a lot of questions, right? I mean, you know, the, you know, the people that are, you know, the Donald Ross folks out there. And I was like, you know, I don't know, but this is what I'd say to your membership. Ask questions, get involved. I mean, I started talking to Jason, we were walking out there on the sand and we were talking about the strategy of the hole. And I was like, he gets it. Like the hand, this is in the club is in fantastic shape in his hands. And to be I fair, you, would, would, you wouldn't make that assumption after playing Calusa Pines. No, I love Calusa Pines. Yeah. I mean, I do, but it's a different. It's, it's a modern, though. Yeah. I, I, think it's, I think it's the second best course in the state of Florida behind Seminole. So, I mean, I, it wasn't that. I think it was just seeing the Calusa Pines, seeing the work that you've done on new courses. Modern. Just in the back of my head was like, is, can he do this project? Can he restore it? And that's where I got involved and just asked questions. Start what, was, what was the conversation you guys had? And what, what was it that you said to convey your passion for the Ross restoration when you were talking to Knucklehead over here? Mm-hmm. Vaughn, I will say that one of the, well, the couple of unique things about Bel Air, right? So first off is that it's, you know, it's not a club up north, right? We're down in the south. Here, you have a really interesting mix of members. You have people who are retirees, you know, and frankly, I mean, and I say this with all due respect and affection, you know, they would be, uh, they would be more happy if this was a village's course, right? I mean, it just, that, that's okay. You know, that's okay. And so, you know, that is a, you know, get it around, never lose a golf ball, never have to think about strategy, you know, go out and have fun. Uh, believe me, there are no bad golf courses in the world. There are just some that are more interesting or better than others. 
but you have a certain segment, right, that you have to cater to. You've got younger members like a Connor, right? Uh, his daughter. I, pay, I paid him to say that. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, how about your daughter? How's that? Yeah, we have younger player. So yeah. There you go. So, and then you've got, I mean, you've got a lot of uh, single-digit handicaps who are professional athletes that live in the area. So, of any club where it's really difficult to cater, uh, you know, to a, such a diversity of members, it would be, frankly, it would be here. And so, and that also goes to the golf IQ piece to it as well, right? I mean, frankly, there are a lot of people here who, even though they know Donald Ross, they don't care. Don't care. And that's okay. I mean, I don't, you know, to me, I'd rather not have it that way, but that's opinion, right? That's just that's somebody's opinion. Well, I'll go a step further. I think how each person looks at challenge is different. So I mentioned this to our group out there. We had the Florida State Golf Association came to Bel Air, and they rank every green on a scale to one to seven. And we have 11 sevens, seven being the most difficult slopes. And I think there are people, and maybe I'll tell that story if you want of the member with this. Yeah. <laughs> and, and here's the thing is like, I'm like, great. Give me more. I, I mean, we took down six and seven to make it slightly easier on that slope. And I was against it. I was like, I think golf is a challenge and you shouldn't be guaranteed par just because you're on the green. I, I think if Donald Ross put it in and we have drawings that showed he did, that that's how that it should play. And again, it was a probably a six on the on the slope or on the speed scale. And my, now it's like at a ten or eleven. My favorite though was that when the one member came in. This is the story, yeah. I don't know if it's the same one or not, but he member came in and he said, I'm not sure that I like the greens. I have to think about it a little bit more. And I says, So what are you thinking about? And I says, Well it's good that they're making you think. And he said, Well I'm trying to figure out whether or not they are too severe or not. And I said, interesting. So I gave him a moment, and I said, so how'd you play today? And he goes, actually, I had my lowest round ever. And he said, I actually had the fewest putts that I've ever had before. And I went, mm, fascinating. So I said, so while you're thinking about how severe the greens are, you actually putted the best that you've ever putted in your golf career. So I said, I go, keep thinking. <laughs> so... I'll give you the story of my daughter. So my daughter is, uh, she's now 18. Well, hold on. I want to, I want to go back because your daughter experienced before and after, and she really started playing golf about the same time that the restoration was in process and planning. So what, what, and she's 18, 19. And what was her impression and what did she take away from the entire concept of, of GCA, of golf course architecture. Yeah, that's kind of where I was going. So my daughter started playing golf her sophomore year of high school, and she had in her head that she wanted to play college golf. And I'm like, let me, you know, how do I get that miracle accomplished? But fortunately, I know a lot of people in the golf industry, and I set her up with one of the best instructors in the state of Florida. And, you know, she's playing, I think, a pretty good golf course, and Buckhorn is another club that I belong to on the other side of town, which is near my house. And I think the greens are very one-sided. There are a lot of break, but it's always in one direction, right? If you just know breaks to the street, you can figure out that course really quick. And she played out here, and I think she liked playing the west course. And I'd say she probably liked it as much as the east course. And the east course, when you play it tomorrow, I'd say our old greens had been when they 
bumped everything up five to 10 feet. They were very plain. I would say one degree slope, probably almost across the board on the West course. And what you'll see when you play the East course is probably fairly similar to what, you know, these were prior. And she would divide her time evenly between the East and West as she played it. Now, she started as a sophomore. By the end of sophomore year, she started winning. And uh, this year, she's a senior. She was uh, voted first team all West Florida. So she got good really quick. And she came out after the restoration. It was her first round playing it. I'm not going to get teary. This is golf course architecture. Okay. So uh, <laughs> she, she was on hole number 13. So if you remember 13, it's right before the par four that goes down and then you cross the creek. If I remember that, the pin was in the back left and there is like a small baby elephant buried in that green. And she was on the front half. And I was playing on a different part of the course and I just gave her a call because I thought, you know, she's still new at golf. She's, she's just going to hate this. I mean, these greens, she's going to hate it. So I called her up and I was like, you know, what do you think of the course? And she said, I'm never going to play the East course again. And I said, oh, I'm like, and I was like, what do you think of the greens? And she goes, dad, the greens are difficult, but I've never had to think so hard on them. I can't believe how much I love them. And I said, I've never loved you more than I've ever loved you. (laughs) That is the correct answer. You're in the will still. So, I mean... and then you called me because I remember I that. I told you Tell that. me the story. And I'm thinking, okay, now what did a member do? Because you're doing the same thing. Yeah, that's right. So I'll, I'll be happy to, just to move on. Um, if you go down when you check in tomorrow, Madeline what is the last recorded hole-in-one on the West course. She, her name's the last on that. She did it December 27th. She was the first junior golfer to get a hole-in-one on the, the re- newly restored West course. She was the second woman. And she was playing it from the whites, which I think is 155 yards into the 15th hole, which is, that's a tough hole to get a hole in one on. It might be the toughest out of all of them, to be quite quite frank. I think the other ones have less challenging greens to hit it into. Who played forward tees? Did you play forward tees today? What was your sense of those? The question was of, uh, asked of Pam Allen of the Donald Ross Society Board. Uh, did she like the forward tees? And her response was, they were fantastic. Uh, to that point, I mean, we have women that are on the East Course um, Restoration Committee. And I think, I, if I'm not wrong, I think there were a couple of them that think they're too short for the lady. You remember that oh, kind of conversation? Mm-hmm. Which I'm like, boy, I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, I think they're a pretty good challenge from forward. So, I mean, they might be club champs for all I know. So they're we can start wrapping this up. We've, yeah. got, we've got a hearty crew left here. we have any questions from this crew that's uh, stayed the whole night? The, the, the question was a uh, good question. The, the cop mounds were placed in the places that Ross had specified. Uh, the question was, where are the rake bunkers in relation to where the bunkers were specified in Ross's plan? Fortunately, uh, even though that we've got a lot of topography in terms of Florida here, uh, it's not like if we're working in other parts of the country doing a you know Ross restoration or another architect's restorative work. Uh, so we had the ability to go backwards on most, if not all, holes. 
So, you know, now the golf course tips out at a little over 7,000 yards, where, of course, it didn't, you know, back, even though it was one of his longest, if not his longest back then, you know, we've added hundreds and hundreds of yards. So we were able to keep, you know, the vast majority uh, of all of the bunkers and the hazards essentially the way that he had them and then just go backwards from there. The question was, when you don't have the original land that Ross may have had when he built the course and you need to make some adjustments, how do you deal with that architecturally? Are you recreating holes? Are you, are you renovating? Are you reinterpreting? What's the process and thought process that you go through in that instance? Yes, to all of the above. So we've done it. Um, so, for example, Kenwood Country Club, uh, which is an old Bill Diddle golf course in Cincinnati, uh, and you'll see the LPGA play there quite a lot. Uh, the major interstate that connects Cleveland, Columbus, Cincinnati had taken a bunch of their original holes, uh, which is you know, back in the 20s, uh, and they had built some modern holes. We had taken out then the modern holes and replaced them uh, with exact replicas of holes that were lost to the freeway expansion, even though it was on a different part of the property. So, you know, essentially you had a template and then you put it back in where it fit. Uh, in other cases, you just don't have the ability to do that. So it, it really is a site-specific um, task, if you will. That's a microcosm of what we have here, right? So, you know, the historical Renault Resto is the West Course that you played today, very much in the ideal structure of how Donald Ross had it. On the East Course, so much has been lost. We have a maintenance shed in the middle of the course that didn't exist. There are two massive, maybe three, retention ponds. This clubhouse sits on at least one hole. It finished with two par threes. Uh, there's a new driving range out there that we're even expanding. Parking lots. Parking lots. I mean, our old clubhouse was the parking lot over here before it was the clubhouse. So what's left of Ross was, uh, I mean, coming back to the committee, what's left of the Donald Ross East course is very little. And it's how can we preserve what is there but work with the land that we have to work with now. It's going to be a very different process, or it was a very different process for our committee and with Jason on the East because 60 70% of it's gone and we can't bring it back. Versus here where we have the land, it's sitting in pretty much the same footprint. Can we you know, restore it? So I, it's kind of both, right? That's right. Yeah, it is kind of both. What was the philosophical target and audience for the East when it was built? Yeah, I mean, I will say this. Um, I'm going to be very blunt with you because you'll be playing it tomorrow. The first hole sucks. The 18th hole sucks. There's, I'm not holding back. They just suck. Uh, terrible holes. Um, Tell us how you really yeah, feel. Two's a great hole. Three's a really good hole. Four's a good hole. Five is a good hole. Six, pretty much until you get to, I think eight's terrible. <laughs> Nine's okay. Ten's a disaster. Eleven's a disaster. The par five, what is that? Twelve. There's um, some hidden the, water hazards. I mean, out it's just. There, I mean, so. you can't see it. There, the ponds are just everywhere. It just, it's, it's Florida golf almost. That's how close it is. It's not quite Florida golf where it's every fairway, but it's just been hacked to hell. And like I, I told somebody today, I think it was the last Dal Ross outing. Maybe it was the Sidey outing. We were playing the East Course and. Somebody loved the East Course, and I'm like, I hope you love it too, by the way. 
Um, <laughs> I know I'm not not a great sale on my behalf, but you, you sold the living I, I hell hope, out of I it. I hope you like it because they loved it, and they were like ten holes in, and they were like Connor, like this is great. You have these two courses. How often you play this one? I'm like, if the West Course open, I'll never play it. I'm like, it's an accident when I play our East Course. I mean, that's how blunt I am. It's that much better. A hundred out of a hundred times. If you say, how would you divide it? One hundred and zero. Now. The philosophy, as you were getting to, is going to be different than what we did out here. Um, part of the challenge is, you know, we're looking at a membership who's, I think our average age is probably 67. So how can we take care and give sporty golf to both parties, the high handicap, the low handicap, the older golfer, the younger golfer, the one that loves golf course architecture, one that just wants to go out and hit the ball and have fun with their friends, um, the bunkers, as I understand it, are going to be more shallow. The greens, way less severe. The corridors, wider, uh, more playable, but still a challenge, right? I think that's also a key. When Jason's looking at the bunkers on the East Course, I think you'll see when you play them, it, hopefully you come back, you play it after the restoration, taking some of the bunkers out of play for the shorter hitter, putting them in spots where the longer hitter is going to get in trouble. I think it'll be fantastic. And I think more than anything, I think it's going to be a beautiful balance of this is not a Lynx course. I do not call any golf course a Lynx course, but this one plays, let's call it American Lynx style versus that will be more Parkland. Is that fair? Very much fair. Yeah. So we're going to have two complementary courses that I think everybody can enjoy and hopefully I can move that percentage from 90% west course to 10% east. Um, and you're calling it the east a renovation, correct? It's a renovation. Yeah, I mean, I think there are holes that we are restoring, but I think, what do you think? 80%, 70% is reno? 90%. Well, you've got, you're, I mean, 13, 14, 15 are probably not moving too much. So right there you have three holes. Is that by the water? Um, we're restoring the the 18th hole that you play tomorrow, by the way. This this was, a, this was a hurdle our membership had to get over, is we're going to end on a par three. And there were, there were culture wars over that. I mean, I we, love the discussions here because I'd have members, right? You'd sit in in these and they'd say, no good golf course would have back-to-back par threes. And I went, you know what? If you're right, then I guess Cypress Point, if it didn't have 15 and 16 – Instead of number two in the country, it could have been number one. <laughs> or ending on a par three, Len. We were using or, like that's right. City. You go through ending on a par. Yeah. Or the back. Oh, it actually, we have back-to-back fives, too. And they would go, oh, you know, no good golf course has back-to-back fives. You know, it's just ghastly. And I would go, I guess you're never going to get an invitation to Baltus for all now, are you? <laughs> so I think it was a challenge to convince the membership to end on a par three. And... I mean, I think it's quirky. I'm all for quirky. The other thing, I think the evidence that we put out in front is that this was never meant to be the East course, a championship course. As I mentioned, it was like 5,500 yards. Ross in his notes calls it sporty. It was for having fun. It ended with two par threes versus we're only ending it with one. And ultimately, I think at least my argument was I'd rather have one finishing hole par three that's great then a horrible 18th hole that is a par four. And maybe you'll love the 18th. I'll, I'll, I'll be wrong. You'll be like, this is the greatest course. That was, you know. Pam, question? 
The question was, how do you maintain the integrity of a restoration once you have finished it from the standpoint of um, memorializing rules and regulations with regard to how do you, you take care of the course, top dress, um, alterations, and over time and maintain the integrity of that restoration? So when did you do what's called an as-built, meaning that once it's been constructed, then you have record documents, which nowadays, because of GPS, drone technology, LIDAR, which is laser scanning, then you can do all of that and have everything memorialized, everything from the mowing lines uh, to the bunker shapes and sizes and green shapes and even the contours. So that way that you've got that. And then of course, when you're in Florida, you know, especially these greens will have to get rebuilt, uh, you know, over, you know, maybe 15, 20 years. And so at least then you can put them back, you know, to what they were original without having to go through all of the painstaking process, you know, that my group and, you know, and Connor and the other members had worked on and do it a lot easier. From the club standpoint, I would say education, education, education. And I think you really need to have a strong leader in, if it's the head of the restoration committee. Um, I mean, I think Do- Dr. Dietrich has done a, a great job with the East Course, keeping people on track. When there's pushback, he'll say, you know, listen, we already agreed to this. And um, I think both of the chairs that we've had for both projects have been very adamant that we did it right the first time and that we had buy-in from the membership and that there shouldn't be a wholesale, you know, change based on, you know, the minority that can be very vocal. A couple more, Steve and Sean. Steve first. Steve McQuarrie made the point that every majors, save for the masters, has been played on a course that ends on a par three. Last question, Sean. Was there any consideration given to renaming the West and East as the uh, make the West the number one course and the East the number two course? Yeah, I don't know when the West and the East was set up, but you're right. It was the number one, the number two course. I think Jim, our head pro, brought it up at one point. Um, I don't know what the process would be if there would have to be a vote, but I nothing really. I mean, there was a conversation of it um, after, you know, I think we have did the study of these two courses. But, yeah, nothing really came of it. I think that would be really cool. There would probably be mass chaos, but, uh, yeah, <laughs> right? I think the East course is my number one course. It would, might come down to if that. If only right? we can find somebody to actually make a uh, really interesting alternate logo for the club, too. There were to some questions it. about your logo. Just, what's it's so the... good. <laughs> so good. He wouldn't fall. My club doesn't want it. That's all right. We like the shield. I think that's it. That wraps it up. Thank you for the hearty crew that lay, that uh, stayed for our inaugural Donald Ross Society outing podcast with our guest, Jason Straka and Connor Lewis of Bel Air yeah, and the Society what I said, of enjoy Golf Historians. the East Course tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> it's a glowing recommendation. I want to apologize for the delay in kicking off season six of this podcast. I recently took a job as the executive VP and head of real estate development for the Onyx Group. And I'll need to take some time away to get my sea legs. That being said, the show will continue. With some longer delays than we are used to. In season six, we have an amazing lineup of shows that you are sure to enjoy. Until next time.
yours in golf history. This is Connor T. Lewis.